Greetings, everyone. Laszlo Montgomery here. Sorry about all those ads and PSAs. We're back with more of this light, but still informative, nonetheless, overview of Chinese imperial history, Xia to Qing. We finished off with the Mongol conquest of the southern Song. So you might want to go check out episodes 169 and 170 for an overview of the rise and fall of the Mongols. It's a long story as far as why this is out of order, but one of the earliest things I ever did when I began the CHP was the standalone episode on Kublai Khan that I ended up getting rid of and replacing with this two-parter on the Mongols from Temujin to the fall of the dynasty in 1368. And in this episode, covering part one of the Ming, we'll look at the lead-up to and founding of the dynasty once the once unvanquishable Mongols were vanquished. I can summarize in a few paragraphs what happened to the Yuan dynasty founded by Kublai Khan in 1271 after he passed from the scene. Basically, nobody could hold it together. Kublai Khan left a whole lot of grandsons and it didn't take long before they were all conspiring against each other and internal squabbles just speeded up the demise of the Yuan dynasty. Despite all the great and lasting things they did for China... The administration of the government and the army, it was in total shambles. Nobody was in charge, and by the 1320s, 30s, and 40s, there followed one natural disaster after another, particularly with floods up in the north. And this was always the classic harbinger of the end of the dynasty. You see, like Qin Shi Huang and Sui Wendi, two great conquering emperors who went on to found dynasties, The Mongols were good at conquering, but not as competent when it came to managing their empire. Kublai Khan, he was like this. His policies, they didn't work. And his foreign wars, it was just one debacle after another. His ventures in Southeast Asia, in Annam, Champa, Cambodia, and in Java, all failures. And his extremely costly attempted Invasions of Japan in 1274 and 1281, where the divine kamikaze winds protected Japan from the Mongols' wrath, also contributed to the decline of the Yuan. The way he set up the provinces, making each one sort of a mini-imperial government in and of itself, completely eroded central authority. It was like the trust system. These warlords, eh, sort of, out in the provinces, were supposed to look and act like vassal states surrounding the nuclear state where the Yuan Empire ruled, which was mostly parts of Hebei, Shanxi, Henan, and Liaoning. But nothing worked. In no time at all, it was like the end of the Han, or when the Tang started to disintegrate. Right at the tail end of the Yuan Dynasty, you had this potent cocktail of popular uprisings everywhere. Natural disasters, you had secret societies springing up like the White Lotus and the Red Turbans. The 1350s were like all those other times in China when one dynasty was on its way out and another one was starting to form. You had a number of contenders as the Yuan dynasty started to wind down. And it all came down to about three guys who faced off to wear the same mantle of past dynasty founders, Qin Shi Huang, Han Gaozu, Jin Wu Di, and Tang Gaozu. The one who came out on top was Zhu Yuanzhang, Born October 21st, 1328, the year of the founding of the House of Valois in France, to give you a 
Western point of reference. He hailed from Anhui province. Like the Han Dynasty founder Liu Bang, Zhu came from nothing. Liu Bang and Zhu Yuanzhang were the only two dynasty founders of ancient and medieval times who came from such humble beginnings to found a dynasty and rule China as emperor. Zhu was an orphan who had lived the life of a beggar in his youth. At the age of 16, his family was killed during one of the Yellow River's more serious floods. In times of famine, he lived in a Buddhist monastery and received a rudimentary education. After the monastery, where he sought solace, was destroyed by the Mongols, he devoted himself to rebellion and overthrowing the Yuan. In 1352, he joined the White Lotus Society-inspired Red Turbans. Now, without getting into too much detail, the Red Turbans were sort of a society or rebel group that combined aspects of Buddhism and Zoroastrianism. And there he grew within the ranks of these anti-Yuan dynasty rebels to the point where he gained supremacy over the army. In 1356, his army captured Nanjing, and it was there that Zhu Yuanzhang set up his base, and later the capital of his empire. By 1363, he started to look like he was the front-runner to take over China, and by 1366, through the loyalty he claimed from various military commanders, he controlled all of southern China from the Three Gorges out in Sichuan all the way east to the Yangtze Basin. Like in the case of the southern Song, Zhu Yuanzhang would become an emperor who ruled the whole country from a southern rather than a northern base. The battle that really did it for Zhu Yuanzhang is significant because up to that time in 1363, this Battle of Lake Poyang was one of the largest, if not the largest, naval battle the world had ever seen. Now, in these times of chaos, such as the transition from Yuan to Ming, when no one was in control of any central government, you'd have these breakaway warlords out in the provinces who sort of wrapped themselves up in the names of the former great dynasties or Zhou-era states of days gone by. And one such man was Chen Youliang. He was a former Red Turban rebel leader who later set himself up as the emperor of Da Han, or Great Han. His base was in Wuchang in present-day Hubei. And his empire, well, if you want to call it that, was contained in Hubei, Hunan, and Jiangxi. The other main rival to Zhu Yuanzhang was another red turban leader, Zhang Shicheng, and he founded the Da Zhou, or Great Zhou Dynasty. Zhang Shicheng operated mainly out of Suzhou, and his stronghold was mostly in the lower reaches of the Yangtze, in Jiangsu mostly. As for our hero, Zhu Yuanzhang, he had fashioned himself as the Prince of Wu, and later Zhang Shicheng as well declared himself King of Wu. Wu was a once- mighty ancient state that was spread out around the Jiangnan region of China, mostly in Jiangsu. So these three rivals, Zhu Yuanzhang, Zhang Shicheng, and Chen Youliang, were all positioning themselves for the showdown that would determine who would wear that mantle of past founding emperors. And these three kept up a rivalry that saw several battles, always with Zhu Yuanzhang's armies emerging victorious. The Battle of Poyang Lake was mainly fought between two of the contending warlords, Zhu Yuanzhang and Chen Youliang. Chen's Da Han kingdom was the greatest rival to Zhu Yuanzhang. 
In this ultimate battle of Poyang Lake, the same kind of fireboats used at the tail end of the Eastern Han, when Cao Cao was defeated at Red Cliff 208 to 209 BCE, were used against Chen Youliang's forces. And in this key battle, Zhu Yuanzhang's army came out on top, and Chen Youliang was killed. And with his death, his Da Han state followed him into the pages of history. They had first faced off in Nanchang, Jiangxi province, and ultimately at Lake Poyang from August 30th to October 4th, again, 1363. By the way, Poyang Lake, or Lake Poyang, however you like to say it, is China's largest freshwater lake. Again, it's located in Jiangxi province, just northeast of the capital, Nanchang. The main battle was actually only three days, but sort of dragged on into October. So Chen Youliang and then later Zhang Shicheng were both defeated. And with them out of the way, the path was clear for Zhu Yuanzhang to make his move. And once the word got out amidst all the tumult in society everywhere, after so many years of chaos and rebellion, that there was now a peaceful and safe haven in Nanjing, people started flooding in. And it became the Ming Dynasty capital. And the population of Nanjing had grown something like ten times. In 1360, Zhu had already set up his own political entity, calling it Ming. So it had been his Ming fighting against the Da Han and Da Zhou dynasties. With them out of the way, and the Mongol Yuan dynasty a mere shell of their former bad self, the timing was right to declare the founding of his dynasty. In January 1368, Zhu Yuanzhang established the Great Ming Dynasty famously becoming, as I already mentioned, the second emperor since Liu Bang in 202 BCE to come from such humble beginnings and later found a dynasty. Liu Bang, of course, founded the Han Dynasty, or more accurately, the Western Han. And Zhu Yuanzhang, he founded the Ming. The Ming Dynasty lasted for 276 years, from 1368 to 1644. Nine months after the founding of the dynasty in the south, the Yuan capital of Dadu was taken. Dadu was, of course, the name of the city that later on in the Ming dynasty was renamed Beijing, or the northern capital. However, when Zhu Yuanzhang took the city, he renamed it to Beiping, or northern peace. The early years of the Ming dynasty was all about cleaning house and getting rid of any leftover Yuan dynasty loyalists. And of course, the entire infrastructure of the country was devastated from all the chaos that went on during the end of the Yuan and into the Ming. There was agriculture that needed urgent care and the Grand Canal, so important to the economy of the nation, it had fallen in disrepair. Everything that had been left more or less unattended to all these years was now getting addressed. Even though the dynasty started officially in 1368, they were still bringing the outer fringes of the country into the fold. Sichuan was tamed in 1371, and the last one to be conquered and brought into the umbrella of Ming Dynasty China was the southwestern province of Yunnan, with all its steep mountains and valleys. By 1381 or 82, it was all over, and China was at last not only united, but united under an ethnic Han Chinese ruler. The Ming will end up being the last Chinese-run dynasty where you have the ethnic Han Chinese ruling. And this is also the first time that the 
initiative to reunify China came from the South, instead of being imposed by someone from the north of China. When these Ming armies invaded Yunnan, by the way, and defeated the rebels there, a young 11-year-old Muslim boy was captured, and his name was Ma He. But later on, he will gain fame and immortality as the eunuch Admiral Zheng He, who sailed the seas in the name of the Yongle Emperor in ships that were the titanics of their day. So Zhu Yuanzhang rose from nothing to become founding emperor of the Ming dynasty. And starting with the Ming, and also with the Qing dynasty, emperors are most often referred to in the history books by their era names. Zhu Yuanzhang's era was known as the Hongwu era, and he was therefore referred to as the Hongwu emperor. His temple name was Taizu. In the past, each emperor's reign would be divided up into different eras, and each official era would have an era name. Well, starting with the Ming Dynasty, there was only one single era per reign. So, henceforth, until the bitter end, the emperors are known by their era names. And the first Ming Emperor was the Hongwu Emperor. He made a couple mistakes right from the get-go. First, he did what a lot of conquering leaders do. He kept the dysfunctional bureaucracy intact that he had inherited from his predecessor, in this case, the Yuan. Secondly, he put too much faith in his generals and didn't change the Yuan military structure either, at least not in the beginning. The Hongwu Emperor reigned from 1368 to 1398, a total of 30 years. And things sorted themselves out, and before long, Nanjing became a haven for men of talent, escaping the chaos in the countryside and in the north. A functioning government was then, little by little, put together under the Hongwu Emperor after the Chinese were in control and the Mongol remnants were all flushed out. And the Confucianists, too, after sitting on the sidelines for the greater part of the Yuan, made a nice comeback during the Ming, and did they ever have a benefactor in the Hongwu Emperor? One of his first great successes was an agricultural reform. Huge improvements to public works related to agriculture were made that led to over-the-top achievements in production, and this, in turn, led to a massive increase in the population in China. The Great Wall was also looked after during the Ming Dynasty. Practically, all that remains of the Great Wall today, if you ever visit it, are the parts that were rebuilt and fortified during the Ming Dynasty, and even that is mostly crumbling ruins. The part of the Great Wall just north of Beijing and Badaling was restored in the 20th century and opened up to tourists in 1957. While the parts of the Great Wall fortified during the Ming didn't totally stop the Mongols from invading from the north, it had the desired effect in slowing them down and limiting their incursions into China proper. Now before we get into what the founding Ming emperor was also famous for, let's look at his other great achievements. He's also credited with the Da Ming Lu, or Law Code of the Great Ming. Like its name suggests, it was a whole new legal code that took China's legal system of the Tang and sort of brought it to a more refined level. The Hongwu Emperor was a friend of Islam and openly and unabashedly praised the Prophet Muhammad and welcomed Muslims from all over Asia to the Ming Empire. The Emperor even wrote this famous work called the Hundred Word Eulogy. It was a hundred-character piece that 
essentially sang the praises of Islam and ended with the words written by the Ming emperor himself. Jiao Ming Qingzhen, Mu Han Mo De, Zhi Sheng Gui Ren. Religion pure and true, Muhammad, the noble high one. We'll come back another day and look at Islam in China. It's quite a long and interesting history. You'd think that the Hongwu Emperor would embrace maritime trade and would reach out to foreign lands to expand trade and diplomacy. Well, not this emperor. In 1371, just a few years into his reign, he issued what was called the Hai Jin. It was a ban on maritime trade. Just like that, after everything that happened during the Song period, the first Ming emperor slammed the door and said, anyone who wants to trade with China must do it through the tribute system. No more free trade was allowed. The ban on maritime trade's purpose was to curtail piracy, especially from Japanese pirates off the China coast, as well as to catch smugglers. And this drastic action didn't work out. Nonetheless, it stuck around till 1405. By that time, we're into the next emperor of the Ming dynasty, the Yongle Emperor. And he's the one, as I said, who sponsored the voyages of Zheng He that began in 1405. Paper money made a big bang during the Ming. The Mongol Yuan dynasty also experimented with paper currency, but that whole system collapsed once things started nosediving in the 1350s. And like today, counterfeiting was rife. The Hongwu Emperor attempted to bring this feiqian, or flying money, back into use. Although he held merchants and traders in lower regard than those engaged in agriculture or scholarly pursuits, he knew the potential benefits to trade and commerce that paper money presented, so he gave it his full support. Compared to strings of copper cash, paper money was light and easily transportable, and definitely the way to go. The Ming Chinese paper money wasn't anything that would fit in your wallet. It was the size of an A4 or letter-sized sheet of paper, and it was made from mulberry bark paper and only printed on one side. The government faced the same problem with counterfeiters that the Yuan Dynasty rulers faced. They printed a considerable reward right on the paper note to anyone who informed on counterfeiters. There was also a stern warning regarding the fate that awaited any counterfeiters. So the Treasure Note Control Bureau was formed in 1374, and they had the first Ming banknotes in circulation by 1375. Well, to cut to the chase, the Hongwu Emperor, as I said, he was a simple man who came from humble beginnings, and historians have characterized him as a little rough around the edges. He wasn't a specialist when it came to monetary policy. Basically, he printed too much money and would just pass out stacks and stacks of these notes to visiting tribute missions. Of course, the money had to be spent within the empire, but still, he printed way too much. And before long, the word got out that the link between the paper money and the copper coins, which they claimed to equal in value, was no more. And soon... A 1,000 copper cash note was only worth 250 copper cash, and later even less. So once this whole experiment with paper money broke down, it was silver bullion from then on. 
Well, aside from all these good things, this emperor had a little bit of a paranoia problem. And his reign, aside from all these advances in learning, commerce, finance, patronage of Confucianism, navigation, and getting the empire back in order after the slow, excruciating demise of the Yuan, well, this emperor is best remembered by his bloody purges and gruesome punishments, especially where corruption was concerned. In time, he became suspicious of everyone around him and was extremely averse to hearing any kind of criticism whatsoever. The Hongwu Emperor, Ming Taizu, he was not a good guy to work for. Going back to almost when he became emperor, 1368, there were many stories about how he grew increasingly volatile and one little thing would spark some reprisal from the emperor. In the 1370s, as he got closer to the end of his 30-year reign, he would blow his stack at the slightest incident or suspicion. And the consequences were not pretty. There was this constant threat hanging over the heads of those who reported to the emperor and who had some authority that they'd get caught up in something not of their own making that would end their career and possibly their life and that of their entire family. It was said his wife, the Empress Ma, was the only one who could keep the lid on him and was able to calm him down when he flew into a rage. But after she died in 1382, he really went overboard. But the first Ming emperor was suspicious and paranoid of rebellions, of secret societies, and later on even the military, where he himself had come from. No one was safe from these frequent political purges. The Great Purge of 1380, where he did away with his first chancellor, Hu Weiyong, led to the deaths of up to 40,000 people who he suspected as enemies, or conspirators, or who even had the slightest, most tenuous connection to the conspirators. And he went after not only his enemies, but their families as well, and anyone who ever had the misfortune to be connected to the disgraced chancellor. And as a side note, after this incident, when he suspected Hu Weiyong was conspiring against him, he did away with the whole palace administration and henceforth handled day-to-day affairs himself. So with this important layer of the bureaucracy gone, it was kind of like doing away with the whole government administration. Now, today, that would be like the president or prime minister making all his photocopies himself, answering every email, answering the phones, talking to the press, dealing with enacting legislation and carrying out foreign relations. That's what happened. And of course... This turned out to be the biggest bottleneck in Chinese history, and things started to fall apart with regard to the Ming administration. As for his handling of the provinces, the Hongwu Emperor's way to deal with keeping tabs on all parts of China was to fill these positions of power in these principalities with his sons. And theoretically, in this way, he need not fear any rebellion with his own flesh and blood watching his back out in the provinces. And his patronage of Buddhism also ceased around this time, and they once again fell out of favor. Rather than look at Buddhism as part of the state structure, which is what they had become, they were viewed upon with deep suspicion. You know, ever since the first Buddhist temple was built in China in 68 AD, the Buddhists, they rode this roller coaster sometimes up and sometimes down, depending on the emperor at the time. Some rulers favored them and welcomed them into their court to participate in the process, 
much to the uh, chagrin of the Taoists and Confucianists, but some emperors did not favor them. So with this emperor, now the Buddhists were down. And Emperor Hongwu, he couldn't stand eunuchs and issued all kinds of orders and directives to keep them out of the government and from doing all the things they did that gave them this nasty reputation for meddling of the worst sort. Now, later Ming emperors didn't feel this way, and after the Hongwu emperor passes from the scene, eunuchs make a comeback and from then on out are involved in all aspects of the government administration. You might be interested in this six-part series on the history of eunuchs. That was uh, CHP episodes 267 to 272. You might want to go check that out. Though the Hongwu emperor did much to suppress the excesses of the palace eunuchs, by the end of his reign... They were already starting to make a comeback. And as you'll see later on, they ended up bringing down the Ming dynasty in spectacular fashion. After a good 30-year run as the founding emperor of the Ming dynasty, Zhu Yuanzhang, Ming Taizu, the Hongwu emperor, and he died in 1398. It was he who restored Chinese rule to China after almost a century of rule by the Mongols. It was indeed the end of an era. But a new era was about to begin. And just as Tang Kaozu founded the Tang Dynasty, it was his son, Tang Taizong, who allowed the dynasty to reach much greater heights. Well, so it was with the founder of the Ming and his son, Zhu Di, who became known as the Yongle Emperor. But before this Zhu Di becomes emperor, there's a whole mess that has to be cleaned up regarding the succession. The Hongwu Emperor passed in 1398, and the original crown prince, he had died early on, and the new heir to the throne was the crown prince's son, the Hongwu Emperor's grandson, Zhu Yunwen. And the better choice would have been the emperor's strong-willed and obviously talented younger son, Zhu Di. So after the Hongwu Emperor died, his grandson was named the Jianwen Emperor, rather than his son, Zhu Di. And to say that Judy was not happy about this decision is quite an understatement. He wasn't too thrilled about being passed over for a lesser man than he. So from the moment of his father's passing, he started planning his next move to take what he believed was rightfully his. And it's this move that we'll address next episode when we look at the Ming Dynasty Part 2 and the splendid reign of the Yongle Emperor. He was the one I said who sponsored the voyages of Zheng He. So we'll look at the Yongle Emperor's reign, as well as this great Chinese Muslim eunuch, Admiral Zheng He, whose voyages were the stuff of such great legend. There's a CHP three-part series on Admiral Zheng He that you might want to check out. That's CHP episodes 92, 93, and 94. So we're going to stop here with the death of the Hongwu Emperor in 1398 and pick up next time when Zhu Di outflanks this rival named the Jianwen Emperor and usurps the throne, setting himself up as the third Ming Emperor. We'll look at him next time. For now, this is Laszlo Montgomery wishing you all a beautiful farewell from lovely Los Angeles here in sunny Southern California. Join us next week, won't you, for another exciting episode of the China History Podcast.